how should we live right now? It seems like we've gone through a decade's worth of problem, pressure, stress, and strain, and that's just describing the last five months. I mean, think about the pandemic, the uh, physical distancing, the digital fatigue that has surfaced out of that, the adjustment to school routines, the, the shift in family responsibilities, the, the different feeling of, of work and life and recreation, the fire of social injustice, and the evil, the absolute evil of racism the abundance of information, but the lack of wisdom and grace and truth. It's, it's exhausting. It's frustrating. It's, it's too much. What's the right way to live right now? And if you're a Christian, if you're somebody who's you know, given your life to Jesus, you've probably asked this question before, but just with different variables involved. Your faith isn't always the most popular thing in the settings you find yourself in. Your beliefs are misunderstood or misrepresented. How should we live in our time when our time looks and feels like it does? And I'm thankful that God does give us some answers by his spirit and by his word. But before we get to that, I want to acknowledge the fact that the idea of church or even a message for you today might be a difficult thing. Like, you know over the next few minutes, you're going to be taught something, but you don't exactly know what that will look like, sound like, be like. And how are we going to add something to our already busy and potentially broken lives? It's like we know that God might have something good to interrupt our lives with, but honestly, do we feel like we have the space for that? I feel that. So I want us to pause and breathe and acknowledge two things to propel us into our time. The first, that Jesus is alive. And second, that Jesus is present. So breathe and let me pray for you as you do. Jesus, you, you are alive. You are here. And for whoever is watching, wherever they're watching, whenever they're watching, I pray that you would help them to experience the fact that you are alive and you are there with them. So we give you this time and ask you to speak, Lord, and help us to listen. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 8 and work our way down to verse 22. And we're going to have to cover a lot of ground in the process. Some of that ground is the most difficult ground in all of the New Testament, as you might have guessed. And so I was trying to figure out, you know, how do I arrange this time? How do I prepare, you know, presenting this in a, in a helpful way? And I was reminded of one of my favorite life experiences, a trip to Hawaii with my wife, Janelle. See, what we did on one of my favorite days, there was we got on a bus and we circled the whole island of Oahu in a single day. And, you know, we, we, we made a lot of cool stops, saw a lot of interesting things. And our bus driver all throughout provided us with a very informative and interesting and humorous commentary of our day. But one of my favorite things he did is he would just take us to places and let the island do the talking. 
There are places, you know, where we went where, you know, now you could hear something, see something, smell something, feel something, taste something. And I think that's what I want to do for the next few minutes. I want to take us on a grand tour of this passage and allow the text and the God of this text to do the talking. Now, keep in mind that everything we we see in verses 8 to 22 is built on the foundation of what Peter has already said as he started this letter. He said, hey, you know, look, there is an event I am looking back to, one that I have been an eyewitness to, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And what this event has meant for us, the possibility it has created for us, is that we can now be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. So much so that we can now live new lives, even though alongside the new reality are the existing realities of our broken and hurting world until Jesus comes again and restores all things. And so as we begin, we need to understand that everything he says will flow from that. And so we begin uh, in in verse 8, and I think what God will want to highlight for us today is this very simple truth that every minute we have the priority to do good and the opportunity to proclaim good news. See, we're going to be reminded over and over again, as he's already done and as he's going to do again, that there is blessing to be found in obedience to Jesus and power to be found in the victory of Jesus. I know for myself, there are areas of my life and probably areas of your life where you are unconvinced of this. Blessing tied to obedience, power tied to victory. And I think that if we, if we do remain unconvinced of this in some areas of our lives, that's where we begin to sin and where we begin to struggle and where we fail to shine amidst a dark and desperate world. And so this message today is very timely and it is also very important. So let us begin at verse 8 which says this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Okay, let's make our first pause here. Honestly, is that a synopsis of your life? Like if you just took verse 8, could that summarize you? Could it summarize your family? Could it summarize our church? You know, we've, we've all seen synopsises on the back of a, of a book cover where we know we don't, we've never read the book, but we go and we check out this, the summary to see, okay, what's this about? Maybe we've done it with a TV show or a movie on our favorite streaming service. You know, like when Disney Plus first came out, my kids were really into Toy Story. And if you've never seen Toy Story, you might find it on there and see the little synopsis, which has the words that sound something like, you know, embark on the adventure where toys play while their owners are away or something like that, right? And like, it's, it's because summaries, what they do is they help to easily identify something or someone. And so I wonder if Peter were to look at us just through the lens of verse eight, unity, love, sympathy, humility, would these characteristics be easily noticeable as summaries of our lives? Honestly, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that would be the case for me all the time, at least not to an authentic level where it would rise to the top of the characteristics for me. And I think this is why. Each of these things has a cost. 
And typically, when we want to spend time or effort or even money on something, it is going to be about paying a cost for something that will bring us good. And I'm not so sure that's often the case for things like verse 8 is pointing us towards. See, uh, I think, I think you know, we, we might find a verse like this and, and, and many verses like this and go, you know, that sounds nice. But then just kind of breeze past it without actually prioritizing it. And I think Peter would push back on that and go, hey, look at where we started all of this. You're chosen by the Father. You've got the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in your life to help you live a new life. You've got the grace of Jesus covering you. You actually can have this describe your life. And in fact, you should. I've, I've wondered if this was more of a synopsis of my life or your life or the, or the lives of the church collectively. Would we have needed something like Blackout Tuesday? If verse 8 was more of a summary of the Christian experience of the body of Christ, would more lives feel like they matter? Would we have the discrimination we have? Would we have the injustice we have? Would we have the brokenness we have? not just outside the church, but inside it as well. Like how many people have had a a less than ideal encounter with Christianity because I have not lived out this priority in the way that I actually can in the power of the Holy Spirit. If nothing else, what I think verse 8 points us towards is the fact that, you know, we, we, we could not do this if we are living in isolation. And right now in the, in the era of church we're in, it's very easy to drift and be disconnected. But Peter would look at us and go, hey, you can't have unity. You can't have love. You can't do any of this if you're off on your own. If anything, this should drive us to stay as connected as possible to the body of Christ. And now look, I'm already like really challenged by this. Like I would, I would find it difficult to actually add some of these things into my life at the best of times under ideal circumstances. But what about when life is hard? When life is difficult? And it's going to be. I mean, look at the next verse, verse 9, where he says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Okay, let's stop there for a second. How, how could that possibly be good? Because look, when evil comes at us, it feels natural and sometimes it even feels right to repay that in some way. Like, how could it be, how could it be possible that we, we should not, you know, want to fight for payback? There was a time where I was in leadership at a different ministry and somebody one day uh, at the midpoint of our ministry came in and, and they just laid out some, some harsh unjust, unremorseful, poorly timed, poorly, you know, toned criticism of my team and myself without context and, and just in a very unhelpful way. And for me, and, you know, with maybe the stress and exhaustion of what I was already going through without those comments, I was like, okay, oh no, you, you done poked the bear now. Like, like I, I'm going to unload some ammunition I've got here. And I did. I repaid those comments with comments of my own. 
And as accurate as they were, neither of us were in the right. Because what happens when we seek to repay is it's like, you know, we feel something's been taken away from us. Therefore, we need to now work to try and get something back for us. Oh, you've attacked my accomplishments? Well, I'm going to come back and I'm going to try to pull back some of that by, by getting a sense of embarrassment from you. Oh, you've attacked my reputation? Well, I'm going to try to pull back uh, and, and get something out of you by spreading a rumor or by talking about you behind your back or by simply replaying your comments over, 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 and over in my mind just to, just to spark some anger and, and that feeling of I'm in the right and you are in the wrong. But here's the thing, and with all of the gospel framework that we have, we know this is wrong for a simple reason. That every situation we find ourselves in, we are already in a position of blessing. See, God, all the way back from from the start, all the way back in Genesis, after the problem of rebellion and sin and brokenness has entered into the world, God promises to bless all of humanity, every person in this world. And he eventually fulfills that promise of blessing by sending Jesus for us to live a perfect life amidst the brokenness of this world, to die a sacrificial death that we deserve, to then rise from the dead to breathe new life into us by the Holy Spirit. We now, our fundamental identity has gone from spiritually dead to now blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So look, regardless of of, of how difficult it is and how evil it is around you in in the time that you find yourself in and the place you find yourself in, every conversation, every circumstance, every relationship, every moment you enter, you are entering from a position of blessing. And nothing you do, justified or, or, or whatever or not, is going to change the fact of what you already have. It's not going to add to it. It might make you feel better, but it doesn't change the fact that you are already blessed in Christ. And I love that the ultimate example of this, by the way, is found in Jesus, like the one we're meant to keep in step with, the one that we are following. He did this himself. Look, he, he, when he faced the greatest possible evil, returned the greatest possible blessing. And I think Christian or not, we, we admire this characteristic and this principle. It's why in the days that, that we've been living in recently, we've seen words like Martin Luther King Jr.'s surface time and time again, where he says things like, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And for us, if we know that we already have the light of life in us because of the one who is the one who ultimately, as we've seen in 1 Peter in places like chapter 2, and as we've seen in the gospel story, the one who ultimately repaid evil with blessing, we know that every moment, every minute we enter, we ought to have this priority to do good in this way. And so how can we do that? Well, Peter will continue and he will tell us, starting in verse 10. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
So look, if, if we have this priority to do good in every minute and to proclaim good news in every moment, what we, what we need to see is, again, this, this biblical contrast between those who are living in line and in step with God's character and God's word and God's ways and those who do not. And although God has the desire to bless every person and loves the whole world, there seems to be throughout the Bible this indication that there is a special attentiveness to those who do seek him, who do trust him, who do follow him. Especially when it comes to the area of peace and prayer. And if we want to do good, man, what more timely and important words could we hear than to seek peace and pursue it? Peter has had in his mind in the whole writing of this letter, Psalm 34, which he is quoting here. Seek peace, pursue it, do good in this way. And, and I think for, for myself, and I need to move on from this and, and not camp out here too long, but I could because look, we see the profound awesomeness of prayer in this moment. And I wonder if that's something we've grown dull to. You know, even Michael Jordan in, in this, this great documentary, The Last Dance, he, he described, you know, this, this process of when you do something repetitively, what can happen is you start to lose that edge and that hunger. And I would wonder, just for us, if we want to act on the priority to do good, I wonder if one of the main ways we could do it, following Jesus' words from places like Matthew 5, to be peacemakers and to pray for those, you know, who, who are our enemies. I wonder if it is starting for us by recapturing the beauty and the blessing of prayer. But we need to move on from this, and, and this, this urgency becomes all the more important because of how things shift in the next few verses. Look at verse 14, uh, where he says, actually verse 13, sorry, where he says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. See, there's going to be times in our lives where, where not only is the world going to feel broken and, and society is going to have problems and all of that, but even for us as, as people who are following Jesus, we are going to come against certain scenarios in the world we live in where we are going to feel avoided or excluded or insulted because of what we believe. And Peter would tell us, look, don't be surprised by this, and here's what you can do. So again, we look into verse 14, you know, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Moving on to verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. You know, when, when we look at this passage, uh, especially verse 15, it jumps out at us because it's sort of been the key verse for what's known as Christian apologetics. Basically, this framework and, and approach to compassionately, you know, bringing outreach and a defense and an answer for what we believe to our world as we share that with the world. And one of my favorite Christian apologists uh, was uh, the brilliant Ravi Zacharias, who has recently passed away. And, and something that he said uh, in a talk way back in like the 80s or something has always stuck with me, partly because it's so weird sounding. You know, he once said, you know, you don't cut off a person's nose and then offer them a rose to smell. 
like really, really weird imagery. What, what's he getting at? And the point of that is to say, hey, look, you know, even in sharing our faith with others, we still have the priority to do good. Like we shouldn't be, you know, bringing this, this beautiful gospel to people in a way that is going to injure them in the process. Look, people who don't have noses can't smell anything, good or bad. And if our goal, you know, with, with our worldview and, and in the debates about religion and, and culture and life is simply just to, to rise to the top of the debate or to win the argument and not the person, man, we've missed the point of what Peter's trying to say and what God's heart is. In every minute, we have the priority to do good, even amidst the opportunity to proclaim good news. And see, as, as he's going to continue on here, um, one thing we would not want to, to have true of us is for us to be insulted for things that actually are deserving of that. If we are going to be insulted, it better be for something that God would praise us for. Because as we find ourselves with a good news story, we want to do good as we proclaim it. And now, and we arrive at these last few verses, and as you may have guessed, you know, what is going on here? This might be a bit of a bumpy ride, but hang in there as, as we cover these and as we read them. So starting in verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. I'm going to pause there and highlight the fact that this is our good news. The fact is that, that all of us are unrighteous. In biblical terms, we are all spiritually dead, and there is nothing we can do to change that. But fortunately, Jesus did everything to change that. And we, we, get, we get upset at, at, at those who are living unrighteously in our world. We need to realize Jesus died for them too, just like he died for you and for me. And two, two things that, that I wouldn't want us to miss here. Uh, first, that God suffered. A great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, said these words, Christ suffered. Basically, this is the epitome of all of the existence of Jesus up until the point he rises from the dead. And you think, okay, I'm living in a time that's really hard to live. It's a time of difficulty. It's a time of suffering. I'm not sure the God that I can follow really gets me. I'm not really sure he understands what I'm going through. Look, listen, he does. He has a profound insight into the, the, the harmful and the, and the painful experiences of life. Starting all the way back at his birth, you know, he's born, there's no room for him in any, and he's laid in a feeding trough. There's a massacre of children ordered from the ruler of the day just to target him. He has to flee to a foreign country and grow up there for a time. Then he, when he moves back to his nation, he lives in sort of a marginalized area. He, you know, he lives with his, his earthly father, a carpenter, and, and all the while as, the, as every day marches on, he knows he is heading to, to face temptation from Satan himself for 40 whole days without giving in. And then launch into a ministry of preaching and leading and shepherding and healing and, and, and moving throughout the world, all of which will result in him being betrayed and humiliated and tortured and killed with the weight of sin on him. Do you give Jesus enough credit when you're in hardship, recognizing the hardship he's gone through? He's the only God who gets it. I can meet you where you're at today. But the second thing I want to point out, not only that God suffered, but that God can be near to you. Because of the work of Jesus, 
because of all of what he has done. Dying, rising from the dead, offering us a living hope. That's on the table for you today. To put your trust in him. To make him the rescuer and the ruler, the Lord and the Savior of your life. And as you do that, what you find is that there is blessing in obeying him. And there is power in sharing in his victory. And we're given two great examples of that in these following verses. Starting in verse uh, 19. And I'm going to read the first few phrases from 18 to lead up to that. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Okay, what? Like, you ever just come across a, a passage of the Bible and you just go, okay, not sure what that means. Like, right, like, it is okay to feel confused when we come across complex parts of Scripture. We have got a big God, and, you know, it's okay to just sit and to wonder sometimes. Like, I do this every time I, I, I go on, a, on an airplane. I, you know, I look around, I'm like, man, this is a lot of metal. And I don't know if they realize how much weight I'm bringing on here with the snacks I've got, but like, how is this thing going to get off the ground? How are we going to get over oceans and mountains? Like, how is this going to work? And I've even had people, like professors, try to explain to me the physics of lift and all that. And I just go, yeah, I can't wrap my mind around that. But it works. And I think we need to be okay with the fact that sometimes we're just going to need to sit and we're going to need to wonder. But alongside wonder, we can also study. We can also ask questions. Questions of this passage, like, who are these spirits? Where is this prison? What was the proclamation Jesus made? When did he make it? And how in the world does baptism connect to all of this? So look, all of what Peter is saying, he's building this case in context of, hey, you know, every minute, do good. And every minute, recognize there's an opportunity to proclaim good news. And although you might be in a place where it doesn't feel easy, it might be difficult, you might be suffering, you know, there might be hardship and brokenness around you, you can still do this. Why? Because there is power in the fact that this, none of this is rooted in just an opinion or a feeling. It is rooted in a victorious event of Jesus' finished work of dying and rising from the dead. And he explains this with, with, the, with this section. Now, referring to the, the spirits in the prison and the proclamation and all of that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of approaches that have been taken to this. There's, there's five that I would say are good, two that I would say are great, and one that I lean towards. And here's the one I lean towards in light of the context. That these spirits are fallen angels who went to a place of punishment and then at the time of Jesus' victory had their ultimate defeat announced to them. From there, Jesus then went and ascended to the right hand of God the Father where all powers, all authorities, all angels are now subjected to him and this ultimate victory has been accomplished. It's going to be fully realized when Jesus returns. But he's saying, hey, look, you can do good. You can proclaim good news. Why? 
because you are now placed alongside this victory. And baptism corresponds to this because what you have done is you've expressed physically an active faith of being immersed in water, coming up from that to represent your dying and rising with Jesus, all of which is based on his resurrection, which has now united you with the ultimate victor of the whole universe. You might feel right now like a victim in your time. But you are united with the victor of all time. And because of this, all of us, we can be peacemakers. We can pray. We can pursue, you know, all of what is good in every minute and proclaim good news because we are with a victorious God who loves us and gave himself for us. So let's go. Let's be peacemakers. Let's pray. Let's persevere. And let's do good every minute, knowing that there is a blessing tied to obedience and power tied to victory.